Welcome to The Lisa Show. You know, we want to believe that that we're all cr- not only created equally, but we're treated equally, right? But it's an unfortunate truth that because of our gender, our race, our sexuality, sometimes life is easier for some people than it is for others. Now, as important as these differences are, part of our identities, and we want to celebrate them, it's unfair and unjust when anyone's held down because of the, these beautiful differences. So the question is, what can be done about this situation? If we see someone being treated unfairly, especially if they're being treated so because they're a minority in some sense, how can people reach out and help? What are those real things that we can do that would make a difference? Well, here to talk to us about some of her thoughts surrounding this and this being an ally is poet Ashley Finley. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So what do you think the perfect ally would look like? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think in an ideal world, um, the perfect ally would look like someone who, um, I guess, who is uh, willing to take their ego out of the work. Um, Hmm. I think sometimes that, you know, um, when people start getting into social justice work or ally work, that sometimes it's it's good that it comes from a place of, like, maybe their own pain, you know, like Mm -hmm. maybe they've just realized that the world is not everything that they thought it had been and things aren't the the way that it's thought thoughts that they had that they were um but then um when guilt seeps in and guilt is the source of allyship i think that um that can sometimes do more harm than good and so i think an ally would be um a person who is doing the work out of a true love and a true seeking of justice um, and someone who's not necessarily looking to ease their own guilt, but instead looking to just see the world reflected the way it should be. So that's an interesting point that you bring up, that that people want to be allies to to Mm -hmm. lots of different groups, and they might not be part of that minority, but think, well, I see this. I want to do something. I want to make a difference. Um, And you're saying... Take your ego out of the work uh, that if I understand you right, that that guilt has no place in in that. Do you think that that a lot of people are motivated by guilt? I think that so many people are motivated by guilt. Um, And I don't think and I want to be clear here that that I'm not like admonishing anybody for that. No, you're just bringing this up as a issue. And I think that it's um. It's natural, you know what I mean? But I think that's where a lot of education comes in. Um, There's, like, you know, so many educational resources that can help people who are looking to become adequate allies. Um, What are some of those best resources, do you think? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I'm a big fan of books and reading. Yeah, Um, (laughs) me too. One of the books that I would say um, is a really good resource is The New Jim Crow. And I see a lot of people reading it. And and I think that, you know, I love the book from my own personal experience. But also I've um, spoken with a lot of people who, um, you know, are who are looking to become allies or looking to kind of broaden their sense of, what's going on in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And it seems to be a very helpful book for them. The new Jim Crow. Um, I'd I'd love to break this down even even more when we're talking about an an ally. People may be a little bit confused about uh, what that is and what that isn't. So so specifically, let's break this down into some some different uh, communities. How can we uh, how can men, for example, be good allies to women? Right. Okay. Um, so I think the way that men can be good allies to women, um, one is to, um, I'm trying to make sure that I have my words correct, sorry. It's okay. Um, one way is to realize that 
they have privilege, right, in this world because of kind of the patriarchal setup of society. Um, and that can be hard sometimes, but I think that um, with education, right, you can, you can start to realize that. And then I think that um, so much of what we see now in society has to revolve like kind of around gender equality and, and also dismantling kind of, of like rape culture and all of that. And I think that um, a good way for men to be allies to women is to use their privilege to, um, to create a sense of safety for women and also to create a platform for women because with women and with so many groups that are marginalized, the issue is um, the issue is the issue, right? It's like the very real, tangible kind of systemic issue. But then it's also um, the fact that marginalized groups aren't encouraged to speak up about those issues. And often when they do, a lot of times they're silenced. So I think, like, for instance, this this platform here in which you ask a member of a marginalized community, you know, for um, for resources on how to be a good ally is like mm-hmm. a really good start. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Just having the and conversation it, and being able yeah. to listen. Well, yeah. I want to ask you about what you said earlier about, because there is a growing conversation right now of surrounding mm-hmm. the idea of privilege. Um, mm-hmm. So, so, how can someone in a place of privilege practice like a sincere allyship uh, and not just give lip service to it? Yeah, and I uh, I love what you said about lip service, right? Because I think <laughs> that um, when we talk about like using our voices, so much of it revolves around people feeling like, well, you know, I know this information now, and so because of where I am, I have to be the one to speak out on it. And I think that's great, but I think what we're really looking for, or what is most beneficial, is for you to create spaces where people can come to the table, where marginalized people can come to the table and have a value value seat at that table and speak about our own experiences. Um, there's also, you know, there's tangible resources like monetary resources that are always really helpful in terms of helping marginalized groups and marginalized um, families and communities, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are in a place to be able to, you know, donate to causes financially, that's really great. You know, we, we kind of live in a society where money Money talks, you know. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, and then also doing smaller work in your own community, in your own little corner of the world, in your own family dinner table, you know. Mm. Um, there's so many conversations re- like that kind of revolve around, you know, I, you know, like a, a person will say, I believe this, you know, I believe that there are these things that affect people who don't look like me or people who, um, you know, have different life experiences Mm -hmm. than me, but, you know, my family, you know, when I go to Thanksgiving, I have these conversations with my family and they're so frustrating or my uncle says something and I just, you know, I get so angry. And my question always is like, what did you say? You know, Mm -hmm. when you, when your uncle made you that angry, did you confront your uncle? Did you lovingly call him in and ask him, you know, to reconsider his his position, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's where the work starts, right? When our families start being brought in to, into our work, even if maybe sometimes they resist that, I think that that is, you know, true allyship because... Right. Um, it starts there. And it, it starts, starts in our, our homes, table. yeah, with our families <laughs> as we are are sharing new information. We're talking with Ashley Finley, who is a performance poet who uses her platform to empower those underserved and underrepresented in communities about allyships and what it means to be an ally. Um, how can we be good uh, racial allies? Well, 
That is such a deep question. I know. And I know that we're not going to be able to solve it in one conversation. But I, I'm wondering if you can help us to bring a, a, a new a new perspective and, and help us to find yeah. a, a new commitment to actually do something. I think um, one way is not to shy away, not to shy away from the conversation around race. You know, um, I think that a lot of people sometimes become scared or race is uncomfortable. And I understand that because, you know, racial issues in our country are still very prevalent and civil rights was only granted to people of color, black people specifically, you know, 60 years ago. So I understand that it's an open wound. Right. Um, but I think that in order to start, you know, building allyship and also building equality um, for those in marginalized and oppressed races, um, we need to not shy away from that conversation because so mm-hmm. much of what allows like this sort of oppression to um, permeate is because it's like the, the thing that swept under the rug, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that if you have a question, ask it, <laughs> you know, if you, if you um, have, you know, if you're, you're starting to kind of have some curiosity about what people t- are talking about when they mean, when they talk about like racial oppression and, and marginalization, mm-hmm. and disenfranchisement, these words, you know, these big kind of college words, right? Um, <laughs> if you start to kind of like delve into what that is, like go to the library, find resources, I can send resources. Uh, right. Asking questions. And yeah. I, I, I appreciate that you're saying that it's okay to, to say, I, hey, I don't understand this or this is a new, mm-hmm. they, why do you feel this way? And, and creating that space to listen. Uh, I, I wonder in a situation where someone is a, in privilege, is a bystander to someone else mm-hmm. being oppressed in, because of their minority status, like, I mean, say it's at work or even just on the street, what, what it would be the best way for an ally who's not directly involved to respond? I think that uh, the best way is if it's safe, right? If it's safe for everybody, and I always lead with that, is to become directly involved. You know, there's a way that, like, say a person who um, is not a person of color, right, um, mm-hmm. can if they see someone experiencing racism or being racially attacked, you know, there's a way that a person can step in and say, you know, Hey, you know, you're going to see me as your equal. And because of that, I'm going to step in and say that we're not going to tolerate this. You know, we're not going to stand by and just watch you, you know, kind of like abuse a person because of your own, kind of twisted beliefs, you know, Um, because, you know, I can kind of, as a black woman, I can kind of scream about it all day, you know, but um, my, I would say that in a lot, in certain circles or certain instances, you know, my pain is not, it doesn't really matter, you know what I mean, to certain, I will say certain people, you know, Um, but if a person with privilege, a non-person of color, um, were to step in and say, you know, hey, this is something that I truly believe as well. I believe that you are hurting this person. And because of that, I'm going to use my privilege here to kind of create a barrier so that you can no longer hurt this person. Mm. I think that that is... Um, I think that that sums it up, right? Just become yeah. directly involved and also realizing, you know, what is safe for everybody in that situation. But in a lot of situations, those are just like, you know, in our offices or right. in the grocery store checkout line, you know. Um, what do you yeah. think are some common misconceptions that people hold about allyship? Mm-hmm. I think that the biggest misconception I find is that um, allyship is taking up space. And, like, like it's not taking up space, right? It's Mm -hmm. providing space. And I think that there should be that, like, 
you know, that distinction, definitely, because while I ask, you know, that allies in those situations stand up and kind of use their voice, you know, mm-hmm. there's also instances where um, that's not entirely necessary. Like marginalized groups just need a seat at the table to use their own voice or to create their their the resources in their communities, you know, right. instead of um, kind of, you know, like allies kind of grabbing the microphone. <laughs> right. Like it's just it, it, not taking away. I think a. a a, a lot of worry is is that well that's going to take away something from me and there's right. this sort of like idea of scarcity so for someone who feels that way or feels like well I don't need to worry about being an ally like I don't want to get involved this is not my my issue or whatever what would you say what would you say to that I would say that it is your issue I would say that most people experience oppression in one way or another right like mm-hmm. You may not be a black woman, but you might be a woman. You know, mm-hmm. you might not be um, a queer man, but you might be a black man. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Or a right. la- la- Latino man. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so, or you might have a disability, you know, or you might be experiencing injustice at the hands of ageism. You know what I yeah. mean? There's so many ways in which people can be oppressed or can be marginalized or can be shut out. And I think that, um, you know, there's a wonderful quote that I love and I hold dear, and it says that none of us are free until all of us are free, you know? And I think that it's prevalent, right? We see it every day. We see the ways in which um, sometimes people, you know, shut themselves out of allyship. And I, and I will say kind of shut themselves out of allyship, right? right? Because they feel that a situation, like, doesn't necessarily um, have anything to do with them, right? But then they turn around and find ways in which they feel kind of beaten down and, you know, again, shut out. And, you know, are they need an ally too. You know? We all we all do, and this is something that affects all of us. We all need an ally. Well, thank you, Ashley Finley, for being with us. She's a performance poet who strives to use her platform to empower those in underserved and underrepresented communities. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. This is The Lisa Show. The rates of child pornography use are skyrocketing, and it's easy to feel helpless against such a massive force. Now, knowing that this is a sensitive topic that makes a lot of parents feel helpless or overwhelmed, we wanted to introduce some simple things we can do to armor our kids and teach them to reject pornography. With us today is Kristen Jensen, the founder of the anti-porn organization Protect Young Minds and author of Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, a book that teaches kids how to resist porn early. Welcome, Kristen. Hi, Lisa. It's so great to be here with you. Will you tell our listeners a little bit about the approach that your book takes um, in Good Pictures, Bad Pictures to teach children about such a difficult topic? Sure. Um, well, you know, I wrote the book for the millions of parents who are waking up to the fact that they cannot control the exposure, you know, to toxic sexual material when there's a portal to porn, you know, in every pocket. So I wanted to help parents overcome their uncertainty and fear because, you know, when we're uncertain, when we're uh, of how to, you know, deal with a topic, um, approach a topic as sensitive and difficult as this, parents tend to procrastinate, right? Mm -hmm. So the books were written as read aloud books. Um, they're very comfortable ways to introduce um, this to children to um, basically define what a bad picture is or what pornography is um, to help them understand why it's harmful to them and to their brains and also give them a plan of action of what to do. Basically, teach them refusal skills so that they know what to do when they see it and they understand that their parents want them to come and and talk to them about it. And they open that door. And so it's no longer this scary, you know, 
topic, but it's something that, you know, it's just a fact. It's out there. Mm. Their kids are most likely going to see it at some point and maybe earlier than most parents would ever think or want. But um, but it's a, it's a wonderful tool um, to really just start those conversations so that parents can begin uh, arming their children against pornography. And it's, you know, very... Mm very toxic effects. So how early should we begin to talk to our children about, uh, you know, uh, the dangers of pornography, what it is, and and how to, how to resist it? Sure. Great question. I get this question all the time, Lisa. Um, parents, when you think about it, how early do kids get any exposure to the internet these days? Oh, it Most? seems like now that they're toddlers, they, they see yeah. Yeah, two and three years old. So that's why I wrote Good Pictures, Bad Pictures Junior. I got so many parents asking me to write a simpler book for younger children. And it just begins, again, those three steps, defining what a bad picture is in a very simple age-appropriate way, and then two, helping children understand that this material can hurt them and, and they need to stay away from it, and three, um, giving them a plan of what to do you know, when they see it, and so that they have these refusal skills in place. You know, parents understand that um, a child that is caught off guard Mm -hmm. uh, and doesn't know what to do uh, is more vulnerable. And um, not only to, you know, becoming addicted, but also to imitating what they see on other children. And that is a silent epidemic as well this child-on-child harmful sexual behavior. So it is so important for parents to begin at a young age. And when you begin when they're young, you know, they just accept it. Mm -hmm. They're not uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's us, you know, as parents, we're a little uncomfortable. But, you know, but it's so, um, the books make it very easy. And if if people go on, parents want to check out the hundreds and hundreds, 600, View, uh, I'm sorry, 600 reviews on Amazon, um, they can see that one of the major comments is this was so comfortable to use. It made it so comfortable and easy and empowering. How do you define a, a bad picture? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, this took a long time for me to come up with this, and I had a lot of help from a lot of other parents. But the basic definition that I use in both books is... Bad pictures mean uh, videos, uh, cartoons, or photos of people with little or no clothing on that focus on the private parts of the body that we keep covered with a swimsuit. So that's a very simple definition. And, of course, it's not the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. But it's enough to help children recognize when they see it. Now, if a kid sees um, nudity online, I don't, most likely they're not looking at the Sistine Chapel Mm -hmm. or the David, right? Mm -hmm. Most likely they're seeing something that we wouldn't want them to be consuming, that we wouldn't want them to be exposed to. And so by teaching them how to recognize it, with a very simple definition, teaching them why it's harmful, And in the Good Pictures, Bad Pictures book for 7 to 11-year-olds, we really get into the brain science. You know, how is the brain impacted by this? How does it become an addiction? And um, although the book is for 7 to 11-year-olds, I've had parents use it for teens. They go through the book and highlight, Hmm. you know, the, the concepts. I've even had therapists use it for their adult clients because it just boils down this process of addiction. Um, to very simple terms that everyone can understand. So you've mentioned a couple of times uh, the, these re- uh, refusal skills. What is that? Yeah. So basically we give them a plan. So in the junior book, it's called the turn, run, and tell plan. So turn away from it, run and find an adult, a trusted adult, and tell them what you saw. Um, now, In the book for the older kids, we call it the can-do plan. We always want to be very positive and empowering for children. And so the can-do plan uh, stands for C is um, 
and close your eyes. You know, turn away from it. Close your eyes. Stop the exposure. A is uh, always tell a trusted adult. And we try to encourage parents to have their kids tell them within 24 hours or as soon as possible. Um, and when you do that, you get kids that won't, they, they won't hide it. And secrecy is a big driver um, of pornography use. Um, and then N is name it when you see it. So when you name something, you're automatically engaging the thinking brain. Um, and it takes over control from the feeling brain that is, is just kind of very curious. So those three things um, you do at the beginning, when you see pornography, those are the, thir- the three things you do right away. And then the D and the O, those are uh, helpful to children when the memories come flooding back, because these are often very uh, mm-hmm. shocking mm-hmm. pictures and easily, and they're very memorable. Kids need to understand what to do to minimize those memories um, so they don't bother them anymore and or tempt them to, you know, to look for more. We're talking with Kristen Jensen, who is the founder of Protect Young Minds. And I know for a lot of parents that this is a very sensitive subject mm-hmm. in one that, uh, as you mentioned, that they're not particularly comfortable uh, in discussing with their kids, whatever age their kids are. I, I don't know that uh, myself as a grown adult that my dad would feel comfortable having a discussion about pornography with me just because of how he was raised sure. and, and where he is as far as that goes. Um, people people would love a resource like this book that you've written, The Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. Tell me a little bit about uh, about who you are and where you come from so that people can trust you that you're going to be teaching essentially our kids the right way? Well, I'm a mom, um, and I saw how this was really hurting families. Um, Went to church and met a woman. Uh, We were in a new town, and she was the mom of a large family, and she later told me how her 17-year-old son had been molesting his younger brothers and sisters, and pornography was part of his, um, you know, what what pushed him, what drove him to uh, start abusing his younger brothers and sisters. Um, and so I started doing a lot of research. I felt this, you know, after I talked with this woman, this mom, I woke up the next morning and I just had this question pulsating in my mind, and that was, who will warn the young children? And um, I started looking for resources, and I couldn't find any. So I did a lot of research. I have a master's degree, so I know how to research. And um, I started to just feel this very, um, I felt compelled Hmm. to write this book for parents so that really in two books, uh, the junior version and, and the original book, so that they could overcome their fear and their uncertainty. Mm. Um, so I have a degree in English, and I have a degree in um, uh, um, communications, a uh, master's degree in organizational communications, and I really care about this. I, I really, um, but, you know, you can mm-hmm. believe me, or you can go and look at all the reviews and see how many other parents have trusted in this resource and really we don't do a lot of advertising it's word of mouth mm-hmm. so much of it is word of mouth people uh, referring um, others to this resource and like you said there aren't a lot out there and this is just a very comfortable uh, book um, these books are very comfortable for parents to just sit down and read with their children um, you know one uh, mom she posted on Facebook that she had read good pictures, bad pictures to her nine-year-old son. He went to school, and a few days later, another child showed him pornography on a smartphone. Hmm. And that little boy came home to his mom and said, told him what happened, and he said, I was scared, but I knew what to do. And when you wow. think about it, yeah. children that aren't warned, they don't know what to do. They don't even know. They don't even have the vocabulary to explain what they saw, let alone feel comfortable opening up and talking to a parent when they just 
know that this is shameful. You know, uh, we so. have mentioned that a lot of parents feel uncomfortable bringing up the, these issues, especially to younger children. I think the tendency is to wait until they're older, maybe to tell and tell their teenagers and ask, well, hey, is this a problem? Or, or hey, should mm-hmm. we talk? We should probably talk about it. You've you've spoken a little bit about the benefits of of, of porn proofing your children early. Um, for those who maybe feel like, oh, maybe I've waited too long, or this is already a problem. What advice do you have for them? Well, first of all, you can never wait too long. I mean, you can, it's never too late. I'll say that. It's never too late to bring this up. Um, however, just like with uh, inoculation, earlier is better because then you're going to be able to get in and help set your child's values and understanding that they need to not look at pornography. I mean, if we don't mention it, if we never bring it up. How are they going to know? Right. How are they going to? They don't know. They don't. And good kids get into porn. Really good kids. Mm-hmm. We're not talking that this is like a moral failing of children. Right. They're biological beings. Yeah. And they get pulled into this. And the people that are the predatory porn industry is going after children. Mm-hmm. So we it's it's incumbent upon us to overcome our discomfort. Uh, Yeah, I think the tendency um, a lot of times is parents feel like it's a failing on their part or they're embarrassed for others to know about it. But I think that if we have more open discussions about it and share our concerns and our experiences with other parents, it makes it it, it sheds a light on what we can actually do about it instead of just let it continue to grow and hide in the shadows. Right. Because the more we stay silent, the more the porn industry wins and they're winning the hearts and minds and souls of our children. We just cannot let that happen. We just can't. And so that's why the books are so uh, helpful to help parents overcome their fears and their uncertainties. Like, how should I, you know, say this? And, and I'll tell you another thing. Children, I've heard of children as young as seven being addicted hmm. to pornography. I've heard of children as young as three seeing hardcore, violent pornography. So, you know, we need to protect our children, and the way we protect them is to teach them what pornography is, why it's harmful, and what to do when they see it, which includes coming and talking to us every time, and we help them then um, process it and know what to do. Now, if a child's already gotten into this, we have a wonderful guide on protectyoungminds.org called the Smart Plan Guide. And it's for children that have already been exposed and maybe even they're seeking it out. And it's the beginning, like, how do you react? And I wish every parent would read this, even mm. if they don't think their kids have been exposed, because it helps you understand how you should respond. And the first thing is stay calm and work out your own emotions before you, you know, give yourself 48 hours. Mm-hmm. If you've seen porn on the iPad, Give yourself 48 hours to calm down, make a plan, talk to your spouse or a friend, and and get things in order before you, you know, uh, approach it with your child. I think that is the wisest thing I can tell parents is that if your child has been watching this, you can can go another 48 hours and figure it out Hmm. before you, you know, confront, confront the child and start to work with that child. And then the other thing is make sure you realize porn is the enemy, not your child. Good kids. We have a wonderful article by a therapist. Good. Why good kids get into, get pulled into porn. Um, it is not anything that you've done wrong. It's not anything your child has done wrong. You are up against a very, um, an industry that is, well-funded and um, that is ubiquitous. And so really uh, we can, I really believe that we can take steps. We can help our children uh, reject pornography, um, but we've got to do it, right? We just got to get in and get started. And the earlier you start, the easier and more comfortable it is. 
The name of the book is Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. There's also Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, Jr. Christian Jensen, the founder of Protect Young Minds and author of that book, has been with us to help us teach families how to be pornography-proof uh, from the time that our kids are first exposed. Thanks for being with us, Kristen. Coming up, more of The Lisa Show. Hey, you're listening to The Lisa Show. Now, turning our attention uh, over to our health and uh, things that we can do in order to be the best that we can be, uh, we wanted to to tell you this statistic that according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. Do you ever look at your loved ones who have this awful disease and wonder if if that is what your fate is? Well, you're not the only one with these raging statistics How is it that we can keep our brains sharp, healthy, and young? Well, Dr. Felipe Dunyan is a board-certified neurologist with a special interest in creating programs for people based on their personal neurological needs. So we thought he'd be a a great person to have this discussion on an important issue of what we can do to keep our brains in top shape. Welcome, Dr. Dunyan. Thank you for having me on. So, uh, really, I'd love to get right into it. Are there things that we may be doing that are increasing our risk for Alzheimer's that we're not aware of? Uh, absolutely. I think one of the biggest myths that has to do with Alzheimer's and dementias in general mm-hmm. is that our lifestyle choices have nothing to do with them. Yeah. And the you just either get is, it or you don't, right? <laughs> right. You know, and the reality is the choices that we make every single day play a huge role in whether we develop dementia uh, later on in our life. So if we're sedentary, if we're not physically active, that makes it more likely that we're going to get dementia. Mm. If we don't eat healthy, that makes it more likely. If we're not minimizing our risk of preventable chronic diseases, that makes it more likely. So the actions that we take every single day play a significant role. Now, when we talk about Alzheimer's, a lot of time we just attach um, dementia right with it. What's the difference between the two? So Alzheimer's is, is a type of dementia. There are several types of dementia. And so people can develop uh, dementia, which is really just different symptoms, symptoms of memory problems, symptoms of, of the way that uh, we're able to think and the way that we're able to, to carry out our, our daily tasks. Um, and Alzheimer's is, is just a type of that dementia. People can develop dementia because their blood pressure and diabetes are out of control. Mm-hmm. People can develop dementia because they drink too much alcohol. People can develop dementia because of vitamin deficiencies. So Alzheimer's is just a single type, even though okay. people tend to be much more afraid of Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is you can get dementia for a whole host of reasons. So I think then the question on everyone's mind, and you've mentioned a couple of these um, just by saying how you get it, but what can we do now, no matter what our age is, to prevent uh, dementia and Alzheimer's? So exercising three, four, five times per week is crucial, right? So our bodies are meant to run, jump, dance, squat, sprint, do all types of forms of movement. And at the helm of that, is our our central nervous system. It's our brain and spinal cord that coordinates all of that. And so if you're not Mm -hmm. doing those things, we see the impact that that has on the brain. Our brains can literally start to shrink. Not only that, physical activity gives our brains everything it needs to make new neurons and new connections. So when we are physically active, when we're exercising, it causes the body to release chemicals that make new neurons and new blood vessels. And so that's incredibly important for a healthy brain. The other thing people want to do is they want to make sure that they're getting enough sleep. Right? So there are hmm. studies now that are coming out that when, when we're sleeping, um, our brains are getting rid of all the toxins that build up throughout the day. And so people who are not getting enough sleep and are chronically sleep-deprived are at higher risk of getting uh, dementia or Alzheimer's disease later on. So those are two incredibly important things that people can do every single day. Now, I want to go back to something that you said that I thought was really interesting, that it was the type of exercise um, that some may be more effective at staying off uh, the kinds of dementia. Can you explain a little bit more about what you meant? Yeah, so if we're engaging in aerobic physical activity, so we're getting our heart rate pumping, Mm -hmm. uh, we're getting our body moving, we're, we're breathing harder, we're sweating, 
that's incredibly important for the brain because that will cause the body to release this chemical called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. In my book, Neuroplasticity, Your Brain Superpower, I, I talk about this chemical and how it causes our brains to make new neurons and new connections, which is incredibly um, important. If you can find a way to combine aerobic activity with complex motor movements, that's even better. So playing a sport like tennis or basketball, finding if you're somebody who loves to dance, find a way to dance three, four times a week. So those kind of things are really important uh, physical activities to be engaged in. I think the tendency for a lot of people when they hear ways to, um, you know, prevent Alzheimer's or dementia is they think, well, I'm going to do some puzzles, right? I'm going to get some Sudoku and crossword puzzles. Uh, What does the research say about the uh, effectiveness of these methods? Well, I think challenging your brain is what's really important. So sure, you can do some puzzles. But the reality is you want to you wanna constantly be learning right? your entire life. You want to learn new games, new hobbies, new languages. You want to interact with people who have different perspectives than you do. You don't have to adopt their perspectives, but it's really important to get different ideas um, about life. You want to travel to different parts of the world. You want to see different things every day. One of the biggest problems is that we tell ourselves that we are creatures of habit and mm-hmm. we accept that reality. And doing the same thing every day is not challenging your brain and it's not going to change your life for the better. Yeah, that's so interesting that you bring that up because I think that the way that we retire or we look at retirement, um, you just kind of settled in, hunker down and just sort of wait out your days. And and what I understand you saying is, is that actually is the worst thing that you can do. You need to keep going. Yeah. Right. And one of the things that I often see is people are doing fairly well in life and then they retire and about six months later, they start developing signs of dementia or they have a stroke or they have some other medical issue. We, everybody needs a reason to get up in the morning and to live their life. Right? So we have to keep going. We have to yeah. find ways to, to evolve and adapt. I'm not saying you have to work your entire life if that's not no, what you yeah. want to do. But, you know, when you, when you retire, you've got to find something else to do with yourself. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Philip, uh, sorry, Dr. Philippi Dunyan about keeping your brain sharp, healthy, and young and how you do that. Um, what are those early signs of Alzheimer's that we should be looking out for? Well, sometimes the early signs of Alzheimer's or dementia can be things that, we, that are normal parts of our day. You know, sometimes we're going to forget where we place our keys. Sometimes we're going to forget people's names. And those are not necessary doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to develop Alzheimer's or dementia, but it can be an early sign. Certainly forgetting how you use uh, something that's common, something that you use every day, like a pencil or a pen, is a much bigger sign of a a cognitive issue Mm -hmm. than simply forgetting where you might place your keys. The other thing that's Mm -hmm. incredibly important is the impact that stress has on the brain. And stress makes it more likely that you're going to become forgetful. And chronic stress can also... Um, lead to somebody developing dementia down the line. Hmm. So I'm wondering if you recognize these early signs either in yourself or in others. Um, is it too late to reverse any any of those early signs? So if somebody has some early signs in what we call mild, mild cognitive impairment, uh-huh. we've seen research that shows that if people are engaging in physical activity, you can actually see significant improvements. Right. And so hmm. doing the physical activity, um, pushing yourself to learn something new, you'll, you'll see improvements because your brain is like a muscle. You've got to work it out. You've got to challenge it um, in order for it to get better. When people have developed the later stages of dementia or Alzheimer's disease, we don't have any research yet that suggests that doing physical activity is going to make a significant mm. impact. But it certainly will not help. Uh, it won't hurt. Right. Uh, you probably talk to a lot of different people um, who have similar questions and concerns, whether it runs in their family or not. What do you think is the biggest mistake that you see people making when it comes to their brain health? Yeah, I think when it comes to genetics, just because there's a genetic predisposition doesn't mean that it needs to become your destiny. And so I'll have people that come to me and they'll say, oh, you know, I want to be tested to see if 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 I'm going to get Alzheimer's disease. And one of my first questions is, 
okay, so if the test comes back positive, how is that going to change your life? <laughs> what are you going <laughs> you to gonna do? What are you going to do? You know, like, you, you need to be engaging in these things regardless. You need to be adapting healthy behaviors every single day regardless. Mm-hmm. Right? And you don't have to identify with a potential diagnosis that has not affected your life yet in that way. That's so interesting that you would say that because I feel like that's not necessarily the the common attitude that we have about Alzheimer's and, and other brain um, functions and diseases and deteriorations. I feel like yeah, everyone just wants to be genetically tested to see what their fate is. Yeah, and, and, and just like I said, just because you've got a genetic predisposition that does not define your destiny. Right. And so so in my book, Neuroplasticity, Your Brain Superpower, it's all about how our brains adapt, learn and heal. It's about the things that you can do every single day to keep your brain healthy. And we can do those things in people who have had strokes, people who have who have Parkinson's disease, um, people who have early signs of dementia, people who have depression and anxiety. Right. As long as you're going about doing the things that are going to keep your brain healthy you can see significant improvements. What do you think that most people don't know about their brains? Oh, I think, uh, I think people don't realize that everything that they do, everything that they take in impacts their brain. Everything that affects their body <clears throat> affects their brain. So even something like, you know, alcohol is sort of an easy example. Mm-hmm. When we drink and we get buzzed or we get drunk, right? It's because of the impact that alcohol is having on the cells in the brain. And I don't think people realize that. The foods that they eat impact their brain. Their level of activity impacts their brain. Um, Their perspective on life, their mindset impacts their brain. So everything that they do has a significant impact on their brain. Wow. What impact do thoughts have on our brain? I'm sorry, what impact do what? what? What impact do our thoughts have on our brain? Oh, my gosh. So our thoughts... um, the more that we think about something, the more hardwired it gets into our brain. So, so neurons form patterns. And the more we think about something, the stronger that pattern gets. And the more likely it makes it, it, makes it easier that we're going to keep having that thought. And so that's why it's so hmm. important to be mindful of the thoughts that you have. Because if there, there's research that shows that out of the twelve to 60,000 thoughts that we have a day, mm-hmm. 95% of those thoughts are the exact same thoughts that we had yesterday. And if that's wow. the case, right, if you're thinking the same thing you thought yesterday, how are you going to change your life for today or tomorrow? And of those 12 to 60,000 thoughts, 60 to 70% of them are negative thoughts. And 60 so to 70? Oh. Yeah. And so how can people have really positive, rewarding lives if they're having the same negative thoughts over and yeah. over? The thoughts that we have not only shape our brain, but they dictate the actions that we're going to take. Mm-hmm. And it dictates how we're going to live our lives. So your book, Neuroplasticity, Your Brain's Superpower, that uh, tell us a little bit more about um, how it's set up to sort of change those thought processes. Yeah, so, so in the book, you know, I, I talk about the things that people can do every day from mindfulness, so being mindful about uh, the things that impact their life to the exercises that they can engage in. Um, I especially talk about them in the context of different diseases, from epilepsy to stroke to anxiety, uh, depression, and dementia. And the reason why I wrote this book was really because of my patients. Right? So I live in a world where people have significant neurological deficits, yeah. and I see the impact that that has on their lives and their families' lives. And yet I see patients every day who don't necessarily strongly identify with their diagnosis uh-huh. and still are able to go about and fulfill their dreams. And it's so empowering to see that in people. Wow. Um, you know, and, and by doing that, they're changing their brain. And so that's something that I wanted to share with, with everyone. Yeah. Wow. I, it's just, it's, it's such an interesting idea about how uh, fundamental our brain health is and, and how everything affects it. Um, are, are there things that parents can do or that we can do today, even if we're not concerned about Alzheimer's or dementia down the road, that we you know, could start knowing how to really take care of our brain in a different way? Because what you're saying is, is, is counterintuitive to a lot of the, the, the things I think that, that, that we, we know about brain health in society. 
Yeah, I mean, I would say this. If, if I'm going to give five tips as to what people can do to keep their brains healthy, it would be exercise, eat healthy, get enough sleep, constantly learn, um, and minimize stress. I think that was five. Yeah. And, and so those are <laughs> so those are the things that you always want to be doing. Right. So I tell there are people that come to me that are 70, 80, 90 years old, you know, and they essentially do nothing all day. And I tell them, yeah. Look, you have to act like you're 20 years old. You have to go explore the world. You've got to go and have fun. You've got to minimize your stress. Stress kills neurons and the parts of the brain responsible for making new memories. Right. And yeah. so you have to constantly be doing um, really amazing things. You can't have an extraordinary life if you're not doing anything new. Yeah. And mm-hmm. all you're doing is sitting at home. Tell us a little bit about the app BrainFit. Yeah, so the app Dr. Dion's BrainFit is a game that teaches people about the impact that food or exercise has on your overall health, but especially your brain. So the way that the game is organized, it's organized into 40 different levels. Each level represents a different disease. So Level one will start with sedentary lifestyle and most of things like high blood pressure, diabetes, strokes, and the last level is Alzheimer's disease. And it's a matching game. So you're matching healthy foods and healthy activities. And as you go along and you're, you're matching these foods and activities, there are questions that come up related to that particular disease state. So that way you're learning as you're playing. I love it. What do you do every day um, to make sure that you're exercising your brain? So I, I read, I meditate, I physically exercise. I try to make sure that my days look very different. Um, mm. You know, one of the things when I was practicing like a regular neurologist, and I still practice and see patients, mm-hmm. but not the way that other neurologists do or other doctors do. I'm not in the hospital or office every single day because I was finding that every day was starting to look the same. Yeah. And even though, you know, patients experience diseases in, in different ways, um, I was often having the same conversation, oftentimes with the same person, mm-hmm. a lot of times with different people, but it was, it was the same for me. Um, and so I had to make sure that my days started to look, look very different. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah, you've given us a lot of really great information. Thank you, Dr. Duyon. Dr. Philip Duyon is the creator of BrainFit app, the first in the series of apps to help people in the pursuit of a healthy lifestyle. He's also the author of Neuroplasticity, Your Brain's Superpower, and you can find more information about him and brain health and his work at nlbrainfitinstitute.com. If you are not finding and following The Lisa Show wherever you social media lies, is that a word? I'm not sure. Uh, Be sure that you find the Lisa show that you follow and you are welcome to interact with us there. You can find us on the BYU radio app, which is free. You can email us at the Lisa show at BYU.edu. What we're saying essentially is we would love to hear from you. I'm not going to beg, but I am going to ask very nicely. You're welcome to reach out to us. Thanks for listening to the Lisa show. The Lisa show.